Part Three, Chapter Six, Part Two, The Edmondson Family, from A Key to Uncle Tom's Cabin, by Harriet Beecher Stowe. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by William Jones. Chapter Six, The Edmondson Family. While in New Orleans they saw gangs of women cleaning the streets, chained together, some with a heavy iron ball attached to the chain, a form of punishment frequently resorted to for household servants who had displeased their mistresses. Hamilton Edmondson, the brother who had purchased his own freedom, made great efforts to get good homes for his brothers and sisters in New Orleans, so that they need not be far separated from each other. One day Mr. Wilson, the overseer, took Samuel away with him in a carriage and returned without him. The brothers and sisters soon found that he was sold, and gone they know not whither, but they were not allowed to weep or even look sad upon pain of severe punishment. The next day, however, to their great joy, he came to the prison himself and told them that he had a good home in the city with an Englishman who had paid a thousand dollars for him. After remaining about three weeks in this prison, the Edmondsons were told that, in consequence of the prevalence of yellow fever in the city, together with the fact of their not being acclimated, it was deemed dangerous for them to remain there longer. And, besides this, purchasers were loath to give good prices under these circumstances. Some of the slaves in the pen were already sick, some of them old, poor, or dirty, and for these reasons greatly exposed to sickness. Richard Edmondson had already been ransomed, and must be sent back, and upon the whole it was thought best to fit out and send off a gang to Baltimore without delay. The Edmondsons received these tidings with joyful hearts, for they had not yet been undeceived with regard to the raising of the money for their ransom. Their brother, who was free, procured for them many comforts for the voyage, such as a mattress, blankets, sheets, and different kinds of food and drink. And, accompanied to the vessel by their friends there, they embarked on the brig Union just at night, and were towed out of the river. The brig had nearly a full cargo of cotton, molasses, sugar, and so forth, and, of course, the space for the slaves was exceedingly limited. The place allotted the females was a little, close, filthy room, perhaps eight or ten feet square, filled with cotton within two or three feet of the top of the room, except for the space directly under the hatchway door. Richard Edmondson, kept his sisters upon deck with him, though without a shelter, prepared their food himself, made up their bed at night on the tops of barrels, or wherever he could find a place, and then slept by their side. Sometimes a storm would arise in the middle of the night, when he would spring up and wake them, and gathering up their bed and bedding, conduct them to a little kind of pantry, where they could all three just stand till the storm passed away. 
sometimes he contrived to make a temporary shelter for them out of bits of boards and something else on deck after a voyage of sixteen days they arrived at baltimore fully expecting that their days of slavery were numbered here they were conducted back to that same old prison from which they had been taken a few weeks before though they supposed it would be but for an hour or two presently mr bigelow of washington came for richard when the girls found that they were not to be set free too their grief and disappointment were unspeakable but they were separated richard to go to his home his wife and children and they to remain in a slave prison wearisome days and nights rolled on in the mornings they were obliged to march around the yard to the music of fiddles banjos and so forth in the daytime they washed and ironed for the male slave slept some and wept a great deal after a few weeks their father came to visit them accompanied by their sister his object was partly to ascertain what were the very lowest terms upon which their keeper would sell the girls as he indulged a faint hope that in some way or another the money might be raised if time enough were allowed the trader declared that he should soon send them to some other slave market but he would wait two weeks and if the friends could raise the money in that time they might have them the night their father and sister spent in the prison with them he laid in the room over their heads and they could hear him groan all night while their sister was weeping by their side none of them closed their eyes in sleep in the morning came again the wearisome routine of the slave prison old paul walked quietly into the yard and sat down to see the poor slaves marched around he had never seen his daughters in such circumstances before and his feelings quite overcame him the yard was narrow and the girls as they walked by him almost brushing him with their clothes could just hear him groaning within himself oh my children my children after the breakfast which none of them were able to eat they parted with sad hearts the father begging the keeper to send them to new orleans if the money could not be raised as perhaps the brothers there might secure for them kind masters two or three weeks afterward brown and hill visited the prison dissolved partnership with the trader settled accounts and took the edmondsons again in their own possession the girls were roused about eleven o'clock at night after they had fallen asleep and told to get up directly and prepare for going home they had learned that the word of a slaveholder is not to be trusted and feared they were going to be sent to richmond virginia as there had been talk of it they were soon on their way in the cars with brown and arrived in washington at a little past midnight their hearts throbbed high when after these long months of weary captivity they found themselves once more in the city where were their brothers and sisters and parents but they were permitted to see none of them and were put into a carriage and driven immediately to the slave prison at alexandria where about two o'clock at night they found themselves in the same forlorn old room in which they had begun their term of captivity this was the latter part of august 
Again they were employed in washing, ironing, and sewing by day, and always locked up by night. Sometimes they were allowed to sew in Brown's house, and even to eat there. After they had been in Alexandria two or three weeks, their oldest married sister, not having heard from them for some time, came to see Brown to learn, if possible, something of their fate. And her surprise and joy were great to see them once more, even there. After a few weeks their old father came again to see them. Hopeless as the idea of their emancipation seemed, he still clung to it. He had had some encouragement of assistance in Washington, and he proposed to go north to see if anything could be done there. And he was anxious to obtain from Brown what were the very lowest possible terms for which he would sell the girls. Brown drew up his terms in the following document, which we subjoin. Alexandria, Virginia, September 5th, 1848. The bearer, Paul Edmondson, is the father of two girls, Mary Jane and Emily Catherine Edmondson. These girls have been purchased by us and once sent to the South, and upon the positive assurance that the money for them would be raised if they were brought back, they were returned. Nothing, it appears, has as yet been done in this respect by those who promised, and we are on the very eve of sending them south the second time, and we are candid in saying that if they go again we will not regard any promises made in relation to them. The father wishes to raise money to pay for them, and intends to appeal to the liberality of the humane and the good to aid him, and has requested us to state in writing the conditions upon which we will sell his daughters. We expect to start our servants to the south in a few days. If the sum of twelve hundred dollars can be raised and paid to us in fifteen days, or we be assured of that sum, then we will retain them for twenty-five days more, to give the opportunity for the raising of the other thousand and fifty dollars. Otherwise, we shall be compelled to send them along with our other servants. Brown and Hill Paul took his papers, and parted from his daughters sorrowfully. After this, the time to the girls dragged on in heavy suspense. Constantly they looked for a letter or message, and prayed to God to raise them up, a deliverer from some quarter. But day after day, and week after week passed, and the dreaded time drew near. The preliminaries for fitting up the gang for South Carolina commenced. Gay calico was bought for them to make up into show dresses, in which they were to be exhibited on sale. They made them up with far sadder feelings than they would have sewed on their own shrouds. Hope had almost died out of their bosoms. A few days before the gang were to be sent off, their sister made them a sad farewell visit. They mingled their prayers and tears, and the girls made up little tokens of remembrance to send by her as parting gifts to the brothers and sisters and aged father and mother, and with a farewell sadder than that of a deathbed, the sisters parted. The evening before the coffle was to start drew on. Mary and Emily went to the house to bid Brown's family good-bye. Brown had a little daughter who had been a pet and favorite with the girls. 
She clung around them, cried, and begged them not to go. Emily told her that if she wished to have them stay, she must go and ask their father. Away ran the little pleader, full of her errand, and was so very earnest in her importunities that he, to pacify her, said he would consent to their remaining if his partner, Captain Hill, would do so. At this time Brown, hearing Mary crying aloud in the prison, went up to see her. With all the earnestness of despair, she made her last appeal to his feelings. She begged him to make the case his own, and to think of his own dear little daughter. What if she were exposed to be torn away from every friend on earth, and cut off from all hope of redemption, at the very moment, too, when deliverance was expected? Brown was not absolutely a man of stone, and this agonizing appeal brought tears to his eyes. He gave some encouragement that, if Hill would consent, they need not be sent off with the gang. A sleepless night followed, spent in weeping, groaning, and prayer. Morning at last dawned, and according to orders received the day before, they prepared themselves to go and even put on their bonnets and shawls, and stood ready for the word to be given. When the very last tear of hope was shed, and they were going out to join the gang, Brown's heart relented. He called them to him, and told them they might remain. Oh, how glad were their hearts made by this, as they might now hope on a little longer. Either the entreaties of little Martha or Mary's plea with Brown, had prevailed. Soon the gang was started on foot, men, women, and children, two and two, the men all handcuffed together, the right wrist of one to the left wrist of the other, and a chain passed through the middle from the handcuffs of one couple to those of the next. The women and children walked in the same manner throughout, handcuffed or chained. Drivers went before and at the side, to take up those who were sick or lame, they were obliged to set off singing, accompanied with fiddles and banjos. For they that carried us away captive required of us a song, and they that wasted us required of us mirth. And this is a scene of daily occurrence in a Christian country. And Christian ministers say that the right to do these things is given by God himself. Meanwhile, poor old Paul Edmondson went northward to supplicate aid. Anyone who should have traveled in the cars at that time of night might have seen a venerable-looking black man, all of whose hair and attitude indicated a patient humility, and who seemed to carry a weight of overwhelming sorrow, like one who had long been acquainted with grief. That man was Paul Edmondson alone friendless unknown and worst of all black he came into the great bustling city of new york to see if there was any one there who could give him twenty five hundred dollars to buy his daughters with can anybody realize what a poor man's feelings are who visits a great bustling rich city alone and unknown for such an object the writer has now in a letter from a slave father and husband, who was visiting Portland on a similar errand, a touching expression of it. I walked all day till I was tired and discouraged, 
Oh, Mrs. S., when I see so many people who seem to have so many more things than they want or know what to do with, and then think that I have worked hard till I am past forty all my life, and don't own even my own wife and children, it makes me feel sick and discouraged. So sick at heart and discouraged felt Paul Edmondson. He went to the anti-slavery office and made his case known. The sum was such a large one, and seemed to many so exorbitant, that though they pitied the poor father, they were disheartened about raising it. They wrote to Washington to authenticate the particulars of the story, and wrote to Brown and Hill to see if there could be any reduction of price. Meanwhile, the poor man looked sadly from one adviser to another. He was recommended to go to the Reverend H. W. Beecher and tell his story. He inquired his way to his door, ascended the steps to ring the doorbell, but his heart failed him. He sat down on the steps, weeping. There Mr. Beecher found him. He took him in and inquired his story. There was to be a public meeting that night to raise money. The hapless father begged him to go and plead for his children. He did go, and spoke as if he were pleading for his own father and sisters. Other clergymen followed in the same strain. The meeting became enthusiastic, and the money was raised on the spot, and poor old Paul laid his head that night on a grateful pillow, not to sleep, but to give thanks. Meanwhile, the girls had been dragging on anxious days in the slave prison. They were employed in sewing for Brown's family, staying sometimes in the prison and sometimes in the house. It is to be stated here that Mr. Brown is a man of very different character from many in his trade. He is such a man as never would have been found in the profession of a slave trader had not the most respectable and religious part of the community defended the right to buy and sell as being conferred by God himself. It is a fact, with regard to this man, that he was one of the earliest subscribers to the National Era in the District of Columbia, and when a certain individual there brought himself into great peril by assisting fugitive slaves, and there was no one found to go bail for him, Mr. Brown came forward and performed this kindness. While we abhor the horrible system and the horrible trade with our whole soul, there is no harm, we supposed, in wishing that such a man had a better occupation. Yet we cannot forbear reminding all such that, when we come to give our account at the judgment seat of Christ, every man must speak for himself alone, and that Christ will not accept as an apology for sin the word of all ministers and all the synods in the country. He has given fair warning, Beware of false prophets, and if people will not beware of them, their blood is upon their own heads. The girls, while under Mr. Brown's care, were treated with as much kindness and consideration as could possibly consist with the design of selling them. There is no doubt that Brown was personally friendly to them, and really wished most earnestly that they might be ransomed but then he did not see how he was to lose two thousand five hundred dollars. 
he had just the same difficulty on this subject that some new york members of churches have had when they have had slaves brought into their hands as security for southern debts he was sorry for them and wished them well and hoped providence would provide for them when they were sold but still he could not afford to lose his money and while such men remain elders and communicants in the churches of new york we must not be surprised that there remain slave traders in alexandria it is one great art of the enemy of souls to lead men to compound for their participation in one branch of sin by the righteous horror of another the slave trader has been the general scapegoat on whom all parties have vented their indignation while buying of him and selling to him there is an awful warning given in the fiftieth psalm to those who in word have professed religion and indeed consented to iniquity where from the judgment seat christ is represented as thus addressing them quote, what hast thou to do to declare my statutes or that thou shouldst take my covenant into thy mouth seeing thou hatest instruction and castest my words behind thee when thou sawest a thief then thou consentedest with him and hast been partaker with adulterers one thing is certain that all who do these things openly or secretly must at last make up their account with a judge who is no respecter of persons and who will just as soon condemn an elder in the church for slave trading as a professed trader nay he may make it more tolerable for the sodom and gomorrah of the trade for them for it may be if the trader had the means of grace that they have had that he would have repented long ago but to return to our history the girls were sitting sewing near the open window of their cage when emily said to mary there mary is a white man that we have seen from the north they both looked and in a moment more saw their own dear father they sprang and ran through the house and office and into the street shouting as they ran followed by brown who said he thought the girls were crazy in a moment they were in their father's arms but observed that he trembled exceedingly and that his voice was unsteady they eagerly inquired if the money was raised for their ransom afraid of exciting their hopes too soon before their free papers were signed he said he would talk with them soon and went into the office with mr brown and mr chaplin mr brown professed himself sincerely glad as undoubtedly he was that they had brought the money but seemed much hurt by the manner in which he had been spoken of by the rev h w beecher at the liberation meeting in new york thinking it hard that no difference should be made between him and other traders when he had shown himself so much more considerate and humane than the great body of them he however counted over the money and signed the papers with great good will taking out a five dollar gold piece for each of the girls as a parting present the affair took longer than they supposed and the time seemed an age to the poor girls who were anxiously walking up and down outside the room in ignorance of their fate could their father have brought the money why did he tremble so could he have failed of the money at last or could it be that their dear mother was dead 
for they had heard that she was very ill. At length a messenger came shouting to them, "'You are free! You are free!' Emily thinks she sprang nearly to the ceiling overhead. They jumped, clapped their hands, laughed and shouted aloud. Soon their father came to them, embraced them tenderly, and attempted to quiet them, and told them to prepare them to go and see their mother. This they did they know not how, but with considerable help from the family, who all seemed to rejoice in their joy. Their father procured a carriage to take them to the wharf, and, with joy overflowing all bounds, they bade a most affectionate farewell to each member of the family, not even omitting Brown himself. The good that there is in human nature, for once, had the upper hand, and all were moved to tears of sympathetic joy. Their father, with subdued tenderness, made great efforts to soothe their tumultuous feelings, and at length partially succeeded. When they arrived at Washington, a carriage was ready to take them to their sister's house. People of every rank and description came running together to get a sight of them. The brothers caught them up in their arms and ran about with them, almost frantic with joy. Their aged and venerated mother, raised up from a sick bed by the stimulus of the glad news, was there, weeping and giving thanks to God. Refreshments were prepared in their sister's house for all who called, and amid greetings and rejoicings, tears and gladness, prayers and thanksgiving, but without sleep, the night passed away, and the morning of November 4th, 1848, dawned upon them free and happy. This last spring, during the month of May, as the writer has already intimated, the aged mother of the Edmondson family came on to New York, and the reason of her coming may be thus briefly explained. She had still one other daughter, the guide and support of her feeble age, or, as she calls her in her own expressive language, the last drop of blood in her heart. She also had a son, twenty-one years of age, still a slave on a neighboring plantation. The infirm woman, in whose name the estate was held, was supposed to be drawing near death, and the poor parents were distressed with the fear that, in case of this event, their two remaining children would be sold for the purpose of dividing the estate, and thus thrown into the dreaded southern market. No one can realize what a constant horror the slave prisons and the slave traders are to all the unfortunate families in the vicinity. Everything for which other parents look upon their children with pleasure and pride is to these poor souls a source of anxiety and dismay, because it renders the child so much more a merchantable article. It is no wonder, therefore, that the light in Paul and Milly's cottage was overshadowed by this terrible idea. The guardians of these children had given their father a written promise to sell them for a certain sum, and by hard begging he had acquired a hundred dollars toward the twelve hundred which were necessary but he was now confined to his bed with sickness. After pouring out earnest prayers to the helper of the helpless, Milly says one day, she said to Paul, I tell you, Paul, I'm going up to New York myself to see if I can't get that money. Paul says to me, Why, Milly, dear, how can you? You ain't fit to be off the bed, and he's never in the cars in your life. Never you fear, Paul, says I. I shall go trusting in the Lord, and the Lord, 
he'll take me and he'll bring me, that I know. So I went to the cars and got a white man to put me on board, and sure enough, there I found two Bethel ministers, and one sat on one side of me and one sat the other all the way, and they got me my tickets and looked after my things and did everything for me. There didn't anything happen to me all the way. Sometimes, when I went to sit down in the sitting-rooms, people looked at me and moved off, so scornful. Well, I thought I wish the Lord would give you a better mind. Emily and Mary, who had been at the school in New York State, came to the city to meet their mother, and they brought her directly to the Reverend Henry W. Beecher's house, where the writer was then. The writer remembers now the scene when she first met this mother and daughters. It must be recollected that they had not seen each other before for twelve years. One was sitting each side of the mother, holding her hand, and the air of pride and filial affection with which they presented her was touching to behold. After being presented to the writer, she again sat down between them, took a hand of each, and looked very earnestly, first on one, and then on the other, and then looking up, said with a smile, "'Oh, these children, how do they lie around our hearts?' Then she explained to the writer all her sorrows and anxieties for the younger children. "'Now, madam,' she says, "'that man that keeps the great trading-house at Alexandria, "'that man,' she said with a strong, indignant expression, "'he has sent to know if there's any more of my children to be sold. "'That man said he wanted to see me.' "'Yes, ma'am,' he said, "'he'd give twenty dollars to see me.' Well, "'I wouldn't see him.' if he'd give me a hundred. He sent for me to come and see him when he had my daughters in his prison. I wouldn't go to see him. I wouldn't want to see them there. The two daughters, Emily and Mary, here became very much excited and broke out in some very natural but bitter language against all slaveholders. Us children, you must forgive your enemies, she said. But they're so wicked, said the girls. Ah, children, you must hate the sin, but love the sinner. Well, said one of the girls, Mother, if I was taken again and made a slave of, I'd kill myself. I trust not, child. That would be wicked. But, Mother, I should. I know I never could bear it. Bear it, my child? She answered. It's they that bears the sorrow here is they that has the glories there. There was a deep, indescribable pathos of voice and manner as she said these words, a solemnity and force, and yet a sweetness that can never be forgotten. This poor slave mother, whose whole life had been one long outrage on her holiest feelings, who had been kept from the power to read God's word, whose whole pilgrimage had been made one day of sorrow by the injustice of a Christian nation, she had yet learned to solve the highest problem of Christian ethics, and to do what so few reformers can do, hate the sin, but love the sinner. A great deal of interest was excited among the ladies in Brooklyn by this history. Several large meetings were held in different parlors in which the old mother related her history with great simplicity and pathos, and a subscription for the redemption of the remaining two of her family was soon on foot. 
it may be interesting to know that the subscription list was headed by the lovely and benevolent jenny lind goldschmidt some of the ladies who listened to this touching story were so much interested in mrs edmondson personally that they wished to have her derogatype taken both that they might be strengthened and refreshed by the sight of her placid countenance and that they might see the beauty of true goodness beaming there she accordingly went to the rooms with them with all the simplicity of a little child oh she said to one of the ladies you can't think how happy it's made me to get here for everybody is so kind to me while last night when i went home i was so happy i couldn't sleep i had to go and tell my saviour over and over again how happy i was a lady spoke to her about reading something law bless you honey i can't read a letter then said the other lady how have you learned so much of god and heavenly things well appears like a gift from above can you have the bible read to you why yes paul he reads a little but then he has so much work all day and when he gets home at night he's so tired and his eyes is bad but then the spirit teaches us do you go much to meeting not much now we live so far in winter i can't never but oh what meetings i have had alone in the corner my saviour and only me the smile with which these words were spoken was a thing to be remembered a little girl daughter of one of the ladies made some rather severe remarks about somebody in the derogatype rooms and her mother checked her the old lady looked up with her placid smile that puts me in mind she said of what i heard a preacher say once my friends says he if you know of anything that will make a brother's heart glad run quick and tell it but if it is something that will only cause a sigh bottle it up bottle it up oh i often tell my children bottle it up bottle it up when the writer came to part with the old lady she said to her well good-bye my dear friend remember and pray for me pray for you she said earnestly indeed i shall i can't help it she then raising her finger said in an emphatic tone peculiar to the old of her race tell you what we never gets no good bread ourselves till we begins to ask for our brethren the writer takes this opportunity to inform all those friends in different parts of the country who generously contributed for the redemption of these children that they are at last free the following extract from the letter of a lady in washington may be interesting to them i have seen the edmondson parents paul and his wife milly i have seen the free edmondsons mother son and daughter the very day after the great era of free life commenced while yet the inspiration was on them while the mother's face was all light and love the father's eyes moistened and glistening with tears the son calm in conscious manhood and responsibility the daughter not more than fifteen years old i think smiling a delightful appreciation of joy in the present and hope of the future thus suddenly and completely unfolded thus we have finished the account of one of the families who were taken on board the pearl we have another history to give to which we cannot promise so fortunate 
at termination. End of Part 3 Chapter 6 Part 2 The Edmondson Family Recording by William Jones